This is the Wealth and Law Podcast, a podcast about the intersection of personal wealth and the legal landscape. We'll take a deep dive into relevant topics. We'll basically teach you what we know, and we'll engage with guests with deep expertise in their field. We hope that you'll enjoy this episode and many more episodes. So please join us on this journey as we try to bring you relevant information that is both timely and important for you to know in order to engage in this area of the world. Welcome to the Wealth and Law Podcast. I am Brent Nelson, and today I'm joined by Fraser Rice. Fraser is the director for, or a director for Pennington Square and the president of Wealth Actually LLC. Fraser, thanks for joining me. Brent, tickled to be here. It's uh, I, Yours is one of the podcasts in the space that that I follow and really enjoy, so I'm thrilled to be on. I think if you if you understood totally how shoestring this podcast was you you may not hold it in so high a regard but that's very kind of you to say as a uh, owner and proprietor of a shoestring podcast of my own i can empathize completely <laughs> <laughs> yeah somebody asked me one time like well how do you do it i was like uh well we hit record and then we start talking that's and right, then we hit exactly. stop the important part <laughs> is you hit stop well the important part is you hit record at the start because it's, True. it's ugly when you have to go back and say hey could we do this again well, for uh, for the three people in the world who don't know who you are, can you at least give them a high level? Sure. Uh, so I'm Fraser Rice, uh, regional director at Pendleton Square Trust Company. We're a Tennessee trust company based in Chattanooga and Nashville. I happen to work in New York. Uh, and then also we talked about the Wealth Actually part. I wrote a book on wealth management called Wealth Actually, and I have a podcast around the topic called Wealth Actually also. And so it uh, you can find that on Spotify and iTunes and all the usual suspects. Uh, and my job is to, in many ways, talk to families and the advisors around families and help them think about and plan for uh, wealth issues, both current and intergenerational. Uh, and sometimes that involves trusts and structuring. Uh, other times that involves education at the beneficiary level and everything in between. Yeah. So your day to day is a lot of counseling, it sounds like. Very much so. And it's a lot of frantic phone calls sometimes, or uh, it's a lot of conversations with groups of advisors trying to solve a problem for a particular family, uh, or it's trying to help a family think through uh, what's coming five or 10 years down the pike to make sure that what what they're planning for right now is reflective as much as possible what could be happening, whether it's you know, birth, marriage, death, divorce, sale of business, that type of thing, uh, to get them thinking down the road a little bit so that uh, we're not dealing with a moment in time that's going to pass quickly. And you're you're an attorney by training. Am I understanding that right? That's correct. Uh, New York bar and all that fun stuff. But I uh, I, I don't pra I don't draft documents and don't technically practice, but uh, I keep it up. Did you did you practice for a law firm when you got out of law school? I practiced for my uncle's law firm called Rice and Justice, uh, and it was a lot of lobbying, securities law, and banking regulations. So I didn't really have a deep background in trust and estates or wealth planning. Uh, after that, I went to work for Wilmington Trust for almost 16 years. And so that's where the real sort of wealth education took place. And then when you work for a high-end trust company, you get very involved and knowledgeable about you know the role and function of trusts and trustees and planning and taxes and all that type of thing and, and dealing with big situations with lots of commas and, and usually a lot of uh, crazy people too at times. <laughs> yes, well... <laughs> But for the people, as we like to say, it'd be really easy. That's right. The plumbing the plumbing is a technical skill. It's the uh, psychology around it. That That's where, in many ways, you earn your money. Yeah, for sure. 
so what uh, what angle do you kind of come at it now? Are you reviewing documents for for clients at Pennington or, or Pendleton, or are you more on the kind of explaining the overall, you know, not the nuts and bolts, but maybe the overall of the the plan for people? Yeah, it's a good question. So uh, you know, for the advisors that are dealing with the families, uh, you know, certainly talking about what Pendleton does, what the benefits of Tennessee law are, and for your listeners, they're analogous to Delaware and South Dakota and Wyoming and Nevada and the other sort of usual suspect premier jurisdictions for state tax issues and direction planning and asset protection. So there's a lot of that, and that's sort of a business development component. But then uh, the next part is sort of sort of dealing with advisors to try to help advise families and issue spot around uh, what their issues could be. And as we talked about before, it could be, well, you know, there might be a tax angle here or, geez, you're selling a business. Is there something you're going to do with the liquidity uh, that uh, benefits the beneficiaries and at the same time keeps it protected? And I should, let me sort of jostle in there and say, uh, Pendleton doesn't manage assets. So we work with RIAs and financial advisors and wirehouses all the time. They manage the money. We're there just to sort of get people to think about what that looks like in a post-sale environment or in a you know, a post-event type of environment. Maybe someone is inheriting something or there's a divorce settlement uh, or the sale of a business. And so that's the basic thing is we we try to get people aware of the issues. And then when they get a sense of uh, what they want to do with the wealth and making sure that they're comfortable from a current perspective and that their retirement's taken care of and so on, is to look down the line 5, 10, 15, 50 years down the line to understand what their legacy is going to be and then to prepare all the different constituencies around that so that the planning is integrated with their wishes and that the people who are expecting certain things are reasonable in their expectation. Uh, and that sort of goes back to something that I think about, which is you know one of the real threats to wealth. It's not bad investments. It's not poor tax planning. It's not geopolitical risk. Those types of things, there's a lot of great expertise around there to sort of maintain. Uh, it, the crazy part is usually revolving around communication. And when communication fails sort of amongst and between generations, uh, it exacerbates everything that's going on under the hood that is that is a conflict. And that's what we try to sort of help out. Now, trusts and structuring are how Pendleton sort of uh, deals with it. And being a trustee is a very useful tool uh, in all of that. But uh, but we get involved also in helping individual trustees make decisions and use discretion. Uh, and that's that's kind of where we start out. Mm-hmm. How much of that, we'll say, sort of, sort of loss or attrition on long-term wealth is is psychological in the sense that people, at least in my experience, seem to have difficulty focusing on anything other than the present. Uh, Very difficult to get people to focus on like you were pointing out, five, 10, 50 years down the road. Yeah, I think I think there's two axes to that. Number one is the time horizon, and people are usually captive to being myopic about how they view risk and investments and, and issues coming down the pike. And so part of it is to try to educate people and enlarge their perspective around the time horizons that they have, especially if they have the kind of wealth where, you know, from my I, it's pretty obvious they're not going to spend all of it by the time they die. Uh, and it's trying to get them to 
pivot away from sort of current wealth thinking to legacy wealth thinking and to think beyond their lifetimes. So that gets to the second act is it's tough for people, generally speaking, to look beyond themselves. And uh, that's where we try to bring in a lot of concepts around uh, different stories around wealth, many cautionary tales, uh, types of things to say, you know, if you're not thinking about what it looks like when you're not here, uh, then all sorts of dangers and haphazards can take place that uh, could end up wrecking the people that you love or the charities that you care about or the other constituencies that uh, that you're trying to help out with your wealth once you've passed away. Um, so that that's the big challenge. Have have that education process take place and then to have that communicated uh, to the next generation so that there is both, I'd say, buy-in uh, and, and, a, and a real sort of acceptance of, of the plan and why it has been put in place. It's The why it's been put in place is as important, if not more important, than the what. Uh, you know, being able to communicate the, the nuts and bolts of an estate plan, A, it's dry and not necessarily very interesting, but the why behind it ultimately is what gives you a better chance of, of forestalling that shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves phenomenon. Yeah, it, it seems that understanding the power of collective action is pretty important for most of my clients that I see who who transition from one generation to the to the next and it's when the narrative of kind of collective solidarity starts to erode and then the money starts to go in different directions and be broken into lots of different pieces that the wealth diminishes very quickly. No and, question about it. Uh, and 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 you lose the benefits of scale too. And and mm-hmm. you lose uh, sometimes the the new experiences that the younger generation has uh, that can keep old legacy businesses young and vibrant uh, and relevant in a different age. You know, I, I've seen that in real estate families who are retail based and the kids were, you know, talking about internet and, and then ultimately Amazon and lots of different things. And the, the older generation wouldn't pay attention to them. And that created a bit of an issue from a business perspective as, as the business tried to figure out how to modernize and take advantage of the strengths they had from the current asset base, but incorporate some of the new experiences that uh, rightly or wrongly, and in this case, they were, I'd say, semi-rightly uh, incorporated by the younger generation. Uh, you know, there's, there's benefits to hearing the stories from the past and understanding the new opportunities in the future to not have that communication and ultimate buy-in as to the wealth going forward. Forward, I think that's a mistake. Yeah, I, I agree. I think it's one of the things that uh, tarnishes the planning. From my very selfish, per- selfish perspective, you know, I'm trying to build these things, these structures that are like going to last forever, but then they get torn apart sometimes, uh, largely because people cannot keep their hands out of the cookie jar. And one of my least favorite scenarios goes something like this: uh, say, mom or dad die. Mom or dad have done very well, but largely they've done very well because they were well advised. And they were the kind of people who listened to advisors. Then they pass away. The kids have not had that history. And the kids might even be older because, you know, people live for a long time. And mom and dad dying might be there in their 80s and 90s. And the kids are in their 60s. So kids have lived already a very full and long life. But they've done so in a way that they really weren't required to kind of build wealth and use advisors and take advice from people. So things get split up. A million dollars gets divvied out to each kid. And immediately they do two things. Number one, they buy a big house. And number two, they buy a ridiculous car. And my heart hurts. You're going into one depreciating asset and then one hopefully 
uh, appreciating asset that doesn't generate any income, right. which if you're the financial advisor advising around that, you're going, what are you doing? Especially late state, later stages of, of an income producing cycle for a person to take a, a great asset, a million in cash, and make it illiquid and not particularly useful. It, oh, it, it, yeah, no, it, it, your heart hurts. Me hearing it makes my heart hurt. Uh, <laughs> it, it's ugly. Yeah, and I, I, it's, it's hard to see those sorts of things happen, but they happen a lot. And they happen despite sometimes my better efforts to prevent them from happening. Um, not like I can necessarily stand in the way of somebody spending their own money, but uh, you know, trying to advise somebody in that situation, for example, to sort of uh, seed the idea of like, well, if you had a million dollars and you could say generate $40,000 a year, you could pay for a decent house with $40,000. So maybe you do that rather than plunking down a bunch of money uh, to buy the, the house in cash to your point to now have an asset that doesn't produce anything at all other than expenses. Uh, so it's a, it's a difficult it's a difficult conundrum. And it's one of the things that, you know, if I could proffer any advice to sort of the, the client base out there, having these discussions early and inculcating this culture around money so that you understand the power of compounding, you understand what interest is, you understand that there's a difference between being liquid and being illiquid and having something that's income producing and having something that's static or at the very least slowly increasing in value. Having that early, uh, I think, creates certainly a more educated class of beneficiaries, but it also creates a more worldly uh, class of beneficiaries so that they aren't taken advantage of not only by the wealth that's within the family, but by the predators that are out there that kind of see the name on the back of the jersey and and put the target out. Uh, and that goes back to, I think, the concept of not only having that money discussion, but a culture discussion uh, with kids, which is the idea of, uh, you know, sort of involving them in the history of the family and what what brought that level of wealth in so that there's an understanding of why they're in the position that they're in. And that while they may be advantaged, that there's a responsibility to stewarding this wealth going forward, no matter what form that takes. I mean, you can't fix everybody and you're not going to you know take a magic pill and solve everybody's problems for them. But you're trying to to reduce the number of speed bumps out there uh, and allow people to uh, you know, sort of get get the wealth to the family with a set of kids and and other constituencies that understand why they're getting it, so that they cause themselves the least amount of damage going forward. Yeah, that's that's well said, and I, I think that's as I say, where I see clients succeed, that sort of thing does happen, and it takes time and effort and a lot of talking, a lot of working through. Where where do you think? Uh, advisors of well-to-do families, where do you think they tend to succeed on those kinds of points? And then where do you think they tend to come up short as uh, a whole? Great to, question. To, to paint in broad strokes and not to throw any very specific person under the bus. I, I will uh, do my best to Jackson Pollock my way around <laughs> the question. But uh, I think that where, where I see the really successful advisors get involved is to uh, you know, the the blocking and tackling of managing the assets and then the financial planning, which I think is what most people kind of think of about having a financial advisor. Um, and it's now turning into a discussion around behavioral finance, around different biases one has around investing and spending and, and all sorts of uh, components of personal wealth. The ones that I think are really successful and stand out to me are the ones who can uh, graduate from that current wealth discussion, which is that that discussion where 
the client is concerned about their retirement. Are they going to have enough money to live? Are my kids' educations paid for? And it kind of stops there. When they can graduate and talk about legacy wealth, meaning, okay, what what is a meaningful life for my kids? And what is a meaningful life for uh, the things that I care about? Am I charitably inclined? Is there uh, is there something that my wealth can achieve beyond you know, sort of feeding you know me and my spouse uh, and and retiring comfortably and things like that? That takes the mindset out of the individual and brings it to the family and beyond. And when that if the advisor is the one who is planting that seed, that information, then they start talking about things like estate planning and structuring and longer term components. That on the technical side, you know, oh, do you have a will in place? Do you have trusts and so on? Then, then the one, then the top 0.01 percent that really do well say, okay, you've got these structures in place. How are you going to make them work well? Who is sitting in the seat of the executor? Who is the trustee of the trust? Why do you have this in place? Are you ready to have the conversation with the kids to understand their responsibility in accepting this well, in leading good and productive lives going forward? That is where I see really good advice coming from really good advisors is when they when they're able to, as we talked about before, extend the time horizon beyond the short and sort of extend the field of vision beyond the personal to the broader people that are impacted. And when that happens, then the client again, uh, is saying, okay, this person not only understands the nuts and bolts of how I get from A to Z financially, but they now understand me. And when they under, when they understand me, they go from becoming a financial planner to a wealth advisor. And that that the word advisor becomes real. And, and in a sense, you go from fiduciary little f to capital f fiduciary and people rely on you for your advice because you're helping them think about things that they haven't thought about before uh you know that where i'd see it not work is when people are uh, purely asset gatherers uh and then they may be very successful uh and oftentimes they are and the metrics around asset gathering are are important and i don't by no means do i dismiss that but uh, the families ultimately after 10 or 15, 20 years, sometimes they they don't benefit. And when the advice stays stuck in the investment world and the advisor is not really willing to sort of put out a little bit more and think more broadly and deeply, uh, that's that's when the families don't necessarily get as much. That's very true. And it's uh, I think it's it's when you have an advisor who's willing to say, what if, uh, even if it's an uncomfortable what if, but a what if and kind of challenge the status quo. So just by way of example, uh, once in a blue moon, uh, someone will come to me and they'll, you know, it might be like a meeting with a client and there are other advisors and very, you know, if they own a business, very often they'll say, and there's the business and we have a buy sell. So that's all taken care of. And I'll say, well, wait a second. There's two of you in the business. Yeah. You have a buy sell. And what does the buy sell say? Well, if I, you know, you know, if I die, then he's going to buy me out. So, well, does his do his kids actually want to be in the business? No. So by accident of nature, his kids will be owners of the business. Do your kids want to be in the business? Yeah, they do. So by accident of nature, your kids will not be in the business. So that's a terrible plan. Right. That doesn't accomplish any of the goals that you think it accomplishes other than there's going to be an exchange of money for stock or something. 
That's yeah, it. You've, you've you've checked off a box, and you, that that's not planning. That's uh, uh, it's checking off a box, which which as you and I both know, I mean, you're you're solving for a an issue that has a moment in time, and you're not thinking beyond that. That that is a that's not a good place to be. Um, I, just one other point that I think is important about successful advisors. Uh, I think really successful advisors integrate well with the other advice components in the ecosystem. Uh, and so financial planners, investment managers, trust and estates lawyers, accountants, et cetera, the ones who who really do well, I think, integrate within the ecosystem around a client and not one person does everything for them. Uh, and so it's important to hear what's happening and why. And then ultimately reading the room and understanding, you know, who's making the decisions and controlling the relationship. Uh, not every uh, situation requires a person to be the quarterback. Uh, and I think sometimes, sometimes they do. And so being able to understand who fits where and why you know, on the advice side of it, the ones who really understand that, that that's when that's when people trust you. And, and that's where your judgment really comes out. When you know when to, uh, you know, put your foot forward and when to step back on certain things, uh, that's when people know they can work with nuanced situations with you and, and advisors who, who read into that well, uh, I think they end up dominating their geographies because people, people find out quickly uh, who, whom they can work with and whom they can trust and, and who quote unquote gets it. Yeah, I think that's very true. And it's important to have a team of people and you don't want to be on a team where one person thinks they have all the answers. Uh, that's a recipe for disaster. Oh, uh, and 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 not only disaster. I mean, you you you, the answers may be right now, and they could be really wrong five years from now. Uh, and the other thing too, actually, this is another thing is, um, I really like the idea of of keeping your ecosystems younger. Uh, it's it's great to have experience and have people who've been at it for a long time, but I benefit greatly from meeting people who are younger partners at firms or who are uh, thinking about new things. You know whether it's cryptocurrency or, you know, a different way of doing an estate plan or, you know, how do I deal with this accounting problem? Uh, that keeps me up to speed and state of the art, even though I'm getting older. And I think that uh, it also helps because as clients get older and the advice around them gets older, oftentimes they were 10 years older than when they were sort of building their business, et cetera. If you have a 70-year-old client and the advice around it is 80 years old and you haven't sort of built in this younger ecosystem around the client uh, of advice, that's when you have that horrible phenomenon for an advisor when the younger generation says, you know, th these aren't th these are my mother's and father's people. This isn't what I am used to or interested in. And then they leave and go to somewhere where they're more comfortable. Uh, mm -hmm. So I think a good advisor, a good long-term advisor, you know, they have, they have the team around them that they're comfortable with and they've got different advisors who do different things. But I think always having your eye peeled for a younger set of people out there to, so that you can learn from them, uh, I think that's a nice way to stay current. Yeah, certainly is. And you do want an advisor who uh, is going to the events and going to the seminars and doing the presentations and staying on top of things. I always get a little bit nervous when I hear uh, about advisors that I never see anywhere at any and I go to all the industry events and I never see, you know, certainly the ones regionally, and I never see these people at any of the events. And I wonder who are they and how is it that they're possibly able to to do the job? But part part of why I get a little bit nervous about that is not necessarily focused on them specifically. It's to your point that it, it seems unlikely that they know the other players. in. 
Yeah, no, they, you know? they, they, they get calcified in the people that they're used to dealing with. You know, you get lazy as you get older, too. And, and, and if you're not interested and curious, uh, then when things like last year happen, when the law is looking to change and you're caught off guard trying to figure out, you know, try to advise people in a very uncertain environment and you're left with an old set of tools with an old set of cohorts, uh, that, that you, you can be off guard and sometimes that can be dangerous. Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, you were you were mentioning kind of um, teaming up and, and getting good ideas. So I had a, a client one time where we worked pretty closely with their accountant on and a few other advisors on restructuring. They had a, a set of family entities and we structured and retooled the, the board, we'll say board of directors level of those entities because people were getting older you know, the the kids who had been running things were in their 80s and we were trying to sort of retool because there wasn't really a clear person who was going to be the person who was going to come take over this enterprise. So we did that. And then the accountants that I had worked on on that project came back to me a few months later and said, you know, I have another client and they have a similar issue. And I was thinking about it in this angle, which was slightly different from the way that we had done it. And we had this great conversation about, wow, can we take some of the tools and the things that we had learned together on the first project, apply it on the second project in a slightly different context, and and we did. And I think in both instances, we came up with a plan together that worked well for each family, but it was tailored towards that family. And I don't think we would have had that that outcome if we didn't have the experience of actually working together. You know, if we had been siloed in our different roles on those projects, we have never been able to kind of collaborate and use our best ideas to come up with the best option for both both of those clients. So there's such, in my mind, such huge uh, benefit to collaborating with other advisors and trying to just come up with all the best ideas wherever they come from. It, there's nothing like working with experienced, really competent people, uh, because when you when you feel good about the work that they're producing and you've you've worked in conjunction with that, the the trust gain is just it's geometric at that point. And then, you know, you can be creative. You can get to that point where you're starting to look around and say, oh, you know, why don't we, you know, what if we you know, did something a little bit different here? And and it solves that sort of idiosyncratic problem for that particular family. That's when that's when you're really getting into hyperspace when when dealing with other advisors, when when you feel good enough that, that everybody's doing their job correctly uh, and you can rely on that, then and, and you have that nice comfort zone where you can suggest certain things. It makes total sense to me that that experience happened for you uh, with that accountant, because it, it, it just makes it, that the integration of, of different skill sets and getting the getting the antennae spread out as wide as possible. That that's where good ideas come from. Do you think educating the clients on the tools is is part of the challenge or part of the issue? So, so for example, and this is one that comes up for me all the time, lawyers, particularly non-trust and states lawyers, let alone clients, do not understand. They don't understand how they function. They don't understand where they come from. They don't understand what they mean. And sometimes the challenge for us is just explaining to clients what a trust is, let alone the very specialized type of trust we might want to no question about it. And from my perspective, especially dealing with the uninitiated, I, I do my best to try to simplify certain things. So in the context of a trust, uh, you know, you have the idea, you know, there's a grantor, there's property within a trust and then a trustee and then beneficiaries. That's 
generally applicable to every trust I can think of. I try to bring it to the concept of, look, a trust is a bag of water. Uh, the water's been put in there by a grantor. The trustee is responsible for keeping it filled and keeping it clean and dispensing it to the beneficiaries who are going to drink out of it over a long period of time. That exa- an example like that is something where you, you know, by by analogizing it to something that's sort of simple, borderline childlike, you at least get the concepts around. And so, you know, for the people who are practitioners, that's a simplistic way of putting it. Uh, for the beneficiary who's 19 years old looking at their phone the whole, whole time, you may have reached them even for just a second that that there's you've got sort of a concept that's very powerful and malleable and has you know, sort of the, these guardrails that are in place that you have to keep rigid in order to keep sort of either taxable or asset protection attributes standard, but flexible enough to be able to deal with certain things over time. You know, for me to go through that longer exercise as opposed to the bag of water uh, analogy, sometimes uh, some, one is more effective than the other, depending on whom you're speaking with. So, uh, you know, getting people up to the a similar level of understanding of what's going on and why it's going on is a huge challenge because a lot of people receive information differently uh you know and you have some beneficiaries who can't receive it at all uh in a special needs context or something like that and uh and that's where you really are acting as a fiduciary because you're taking someone taking care of someone who can't take care of themselves uh and you have every grade in between that's where reading the room and really having sort of that emotional intelligence about you i think really separate successful people in this industry. Yeah. Once again, I think you're very right about that. I think it's uh, it's pretty obvious that a lot of your day is spent counseling, explaining, trying to help people and meet people at their level. But I think that's probably the key is just finding, trying to suss out the level that they're at and go there and then build them up from, you know, don't make people feel bad because they don't understand, but find where they are and then build them up. Uh, I mean, I, I don't feel badly when I don't understand things. It's taken me a long time <laughs> to get comfortable with that. But, uh, you know, even a, I, I'm no crypto expert, but I've had to think about it because it's been brought up to me. And, you know, you just have to kind of be willing to stub your toe and and hope that you have an accepting group around you. And, and you know, those good advisors are receptive to questions and, you know, sort of like a five-year-old, why is this? Why is that? Why does this work? Why does that work? What if you did that? You know, it requires a lot of patience and uh, time often oftentimes but uh that that's what helps you graduate and sort of get get past the technical to get to you know sort of really effectuating the general gist of what the family's trying to uh, achieve yeah very good well i could uh continue talking to you about this all day long because this is the sort of thing that i really enjoy uh but i i will let you go in the interest of your your time and, and i really appreciate you spending a little bit of time with me, lending your expertise, giving me some of your thoughts here. I just can't thank you enough, Fraser. Uh, Brent, uh, again, thrilled to be on. I encourage anybody who, you know, in the listenership who hasn't heard your previous spots to give them a listen because there's a lot of great expertise in there and uh, I'm a big fan. Well, I appreciate that very much. If people are trying to find you, what's the easiest way for them to find you? Uh, great. Thank you. Uh, FraserRice.com and PendletonSquareTrust.com. And if you Google Fraser and Rice, uh, lots of things come up. So you should, <laughs> should be able to find me. The machines know you exist. That's always a good thing. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, again, thank you very much. I'll add all that to the show notes, of course, so people can find you there. But appreciate it very much. We'll catch up with you later. Great. Thank you. Hey, listeners, thanks again for joining me on the podcast. It's fun to do it for you. If you're enjoying it, please subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to my blog at wealthandlaw.com. 
and follow me on social media at Love and Law. I'll see you there.